Welcome to the Body Grievers Club. This is a podcast aimed to help those who are struggling to make peace with their here and now bodies. I'm your host, Bree, a fat positive body image educator and coach. My goal is to help you feel less alone in your body grief. Join me as we explore the ins and outs of body image, body grief, as you find your way home to your body. Welcome to the club. Hey friends, and welcome back to the Body Groovers Club. Thanks for showing up for the conversation today. I am so pumped. I realize I start all of my episodes this way, but I really am pumped to talk to today's guest, Reagan Chastain. I have been a longtime follower and fangirl of Reagan. Her work has been instrumental in my own healing. So I'm so excited to bring you this conversation today. Uh, we are going to be talking all things uh, about medical fat phobia. So we'll be covering topics not only of why the BMI is bullshit, how implicit bias becomes explicit bias, and even some tangible and practical ways you can talk to your di- your doctors uh, about your diagnosis and treatments. But we want to remind you that weight stigma is not your fault, even if it is your problem. So I don't want to take any more time, um, so we're going to get to the episode, but I'd be remiss if I didn't invite you to also uh, email us at hello.bodyimagewithbrie at gmail.com. If you did not get a chance to attend Reagan's uh, panel discussion with me and our, our friends Nikki Bailey and Caitlin Anderley, we had a discussion about the harmful impacts of weight loss surgery, and that is available for purchase for replay access. So if you have not seen that, um, I encourage you to either check out the show notes or email us at hello.bodyimagewithbrie at gmail.com. So without further ado, let's go talk to Reagan. Hi, and welcome back to the podcast. I'm literally fangirling over here today. We have the infamous Reagan Chastain here to talk with us. Reagan, hi. Thank you for being here. Oh my gosh. Thank you for having me and calling me infamous. I like it. <laughs> I feel like in, especially in this, in the spaces that we share, um, it's like, have you heard of Reagan Chastain? And I'm like, have I? Of course. <laughs> oh my goodness. So tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do. Give us the spiel. Sure. So um, I am a fat queer uh, speaker and writer and activist. I'm a pronouns are she, her. Um, I started in this actually on my own personal journey. My background is research methods and statistics. So I'm a big nerd. And I was actually trying to find like the best diet. And so I decided to do a literature review of all the weight loss research and find the diet that was the best. And what I found was what you know, which is that like almost nobody succeeds at this. And even the tiny percentage who quote unquote succeed, it's often like five pounds of weight loss, which like I could do that with a loofah and a haircut right now. I don't need like two years of some like BS Weight Watchers thing to do. So like that was what got me into it. And then, so for the past almost 20 years now, I've been studying the research around weight and health and also in specifically healthcare and how those things intersect. And so I do a lot of talking and writing about that. Oh my goodness. And, and I 
I like to nerd out on other people's stats, but I like to talk about the feelings. <laughs> so we, I mean, we make a, a dynamic duo because you can tell like us it. all the statistics and the facts. And I feel like, especially when people are coming into this journey, that's probably one of the first things they want to know is like, well, where's the research? What is the research saying? I know for me, one of my biggest hurdles in coming uh, into body acceptance and body liberation was being okay with being fat and knowing that my health isn't determined by my size. And, and also I would like to say, I wonder if you could touch on this completely, just jumping right in, but does the research even assess for eating disorders and for disordered eating, or is it just weight loss? Yeah. So this is really important. First of all, health is not an obligation. It's not a barometer of worthiness and it's not entirely within our control. Um, and so many things outside of our control, including like experiencing of oppression, uh, impact our health. And so that's always going to have the greatest impact on those at the highest weights and those who are experiencing multiple marginalizations, including, and especially racism, uh, weight stigma itself and BMI. A lot of the ways that we medicalize and pathologize fat bodies is rooted in and inextricable from racism and anti-blackness. Mm -hmm. And so highly recommend Sabrina Strings, Fearing the Black Body and Deshaun Harrison's Belly of the Beast for both of those. So with that kind of as a base, a real quick base of understanding of that, the research typically does not look, in fact, you'll see to this day, people say there's no harm that comes from weight loss interventions. And that's simply not true. I mean, we know that weight cycling causes tremendous harm independent of weight loss. Like we have that research, we have research around the way that this kind of restriction drives eating disorders, as you mentioned. And so it is a huge problem that not only is the suggestion that it's worth risking fat people's lives and quality of life to make them thin, but then the harm that that does gets erased in the research itself. Wow. That's, I mean, so, so powerful. And I think for, for anyone who exists in a larger body or in a marginalized body, we could probably relate to the fact that we don't like going to the doctors. And why is that? So even if there isn't factual um, basis, which there is, to the, the medical harm of fat phobia in the doctor's office, if we continue to push this weight loss narrative, it's not only traumatizing people physically and impacting their health, but it also impacts their emotions. And I share about that. Um, I, I've shared about that recently on Instagram and in, in this drop of the podcast, I will have an episode on, on healing the narrative around going to the doctors because it's not safe for me to go to the doctors. I can't guarantee that I'm going to walk into the doctors and actually get quality medical care. And so tell us, tell us the information about the harm of fat phobia in medicine. Yeah. So weight stigma harms people in medical care at every point of the care circle. So beginning with the research, right? Higher weight people are typically not included in research. And then if the tools, best practices, pharmaceuticals that are developed don't work as well on us, well, they blame our bodies for that. And then there's practitioner bias, which is both implicit and explicit. There's training. I talk at a lot of medical schools, right? These are folks who are being trained to see fat patients as basically walking, talking pathologies. And so we get practitioner weight obsession, which means that they are so focused on changing body size that they miss crucial diagnoses. In the cases like Ellen Maud Bennett, for example, it's fatal. Right. This is someone who went to multiple doctors and was constantly told to lose weight and so that they didn't find the cancer until it was too late. And in her obituary, she asked that we tell her story and use it as a way to help higher weight women. Um, and she said women in particular, but I would say higher weight people of all genders to, you know, understand that weight stigma is impacting their care. So there's that piece of it. Um, and then there's 
you know, doctors practicing stereotypes instead of medicine. They, uh, you know, telling you to eat less and exercise more with no information about how much you eat or how much you exercise is a good example of that. Uh, the weigh-in and BMI process, and then the focus on, again, weight rather than actual health. And so at every point, and then all of the harms that are created by this, and then of course the, the, um, prescribing of weight loss as if it's an ethical evidence-based intervention, which it is not. So then you've got all of the harms that come from all of this and all of those harms get blamed on higher weight bodies. And so it's a system that creates weight stigma and weight cycling and inequalities to access and care. And then it blames the harms of those things on fat bodies. And then it uses those harms to justify more weight stigma, weight cycling and inequalities of care. And so it's a self-perpetuating system that we absolutely have to break. Mm. And if I remember actually doing a little bit of research in my, in my graduate program, again, not best with the research. So my research was limited. And I think the extent of my research was, um, oh gosh, the professor in, in Yale, uh, Rudd, or, Rebecca Rudd, yes, Rudd, the Rudd Center. And, and so they talked about like, what are the, what are the long-term impacts of medical fat phobia? So one thing, whenever I talk about the Red Center, I want to be clear, they were coming from a place of eugenics. So they are the like, we don't want to stigmatize fat people. We just want to eradicate them from the earth and make sure no more ever exist. But like, not in a stigmatizing way. (laughs) That is not anti-stigma. So they do some good research, but they are also problematic in the ways that they- discuss it. And so when we look at long-term impacts, one of them is going to be um, the impacts of weight stigma itself. And like Peter Mutig out of Columbia did a couple studies. He found that, for example, with cis women, they had more mental and physical illness if they were concerned about their size than they had if they were okay with their weight, regardless of their weight. He also found that the stress of weight stigma was correlated independently with the same health issues to which simply living in a higher weight body is correlated. So we've got those impacts. And then we've got the impacts again of weight cycling. And for example, bacon and afro. So weight cycling is yo-yo dieting. It's the by far most common outcome of more than one dieting attempt or intentional weight loss attempt. And bacon and afro found that, um, not only is it, uh, associated with things like increased inflammation, increased risk of cardiac incidents, but it actually could account for all of the excess mortality that gets blamed on quote obesity in both Framingham and the NHANES. And so weight cycling, it's important to understand in the research, you're supposed to control for confounding variables. So it's not enough to say, okay, people of this weight have this health issue more often. Oh, well, it must be their size and making them thinner must be the cure. That's not science. That's guessing. Mm-hmm. right? All we have is this relationship. Okay. If higher weight people get these health issues more often, we have to look at what else could be causing this relationship and weight stigma, weight cycling, and healthcare inequalities are three very well-researched things that affect that relationship that are not only not controlled for in the research, but typically not even discussed as possible, you know, confounding variables or as existing in the world at all. Mm-hmm. And so it's important to understand that's a massive limitation of the research around weight and health. It's it's mind boggling as you hear it and it like it makes sense. And it's like, well, how did we get here? So now we know that the root of weight stigma comes from oppression of black and indigenous bodies, right? Is that there is that. And I think there's also a financial piece as well that I'm sure you probably could speak to more of uh, how how do finances or how how are we where we are? Yeah. So the root is absolutely um, racism, white supremacy, anti-Blackness, and everything is fruit of that poisoned tree and continues to disproportionately impact um, 
Black people, people of color around all of the aspects of weight stigma. Uh, And then there's the diet industry that was happy to leverage that into profit. And so it's an industry that started off talking about like, we'll make you more quote unquote attractive, but then figured out how much more money they could make if they sort of wheedled their way into healthcare and they started to get on committees and and like, there are so many examples, but in 1998, a committee that was made up of um, almost everyone was running a weight loss clinic. And the head of the committee was a former executive director and current board member of Weight Watchers. And they convinced the NIH to drop what was considered uh, like a quote unquote, normal weight BMI and uh, quote unquote, overweight and quote unquote, obese. And so they made, they literally made about 29 million Americans quote, overweight and obese overnight, and then had a PR campaign that started the next day about people don't even know that they're fat, right? And it's like, well, they weren't yesterday. So like maybe give them a minute, but this is just one example of many. And so it's become incredibly profitable. And now, and I don't think everybody who has been duped into this is trying to create harm. Some people are, Jillian Michaels is trying to create harm for me. Absolutely. It's her deal. Not everybody is, but at some point, like the research is very clear about this, Mm. that weight neutral options give much greater benefits with much less risk. And so at some point being ignorant of the research or being unwilling to change because you've pinned your medical career on a mistake is not a justification for continuing to harm fat people. Mm. Jillian Michaels blocked me on Instagram. Fun fact. Oh, congrats. Same. (laughs) It was like a big day for me. I was like, yes. It was, so it was, it was when first she attacked Lizzo and I made a post addressing her, which can we freaking leave Lizzo alone, first of all. And then second, it was when she started talking about intuitive eating and I was like, well, I want to see, and I couldn't find her. And I was like, oh, I guess I got blocked. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I am also part of the block by Jillian Michaels club. I will, we, we can start a support club and and cry the (laughs) tears of, uh, you know, I mean, I was, I felt, I was like, I feel like I've arrived. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I think there are so many people who they become defensive of their narrative because if we were to break down that narrative, then everything they have built on would crumble. And so I want to speak to the person who is like, okay, well, yes. So maybe that's not about aesthetics and it's, it's not about health, but I know that it is harder to live in society in a larger body and that I am missing out on things because of that. What would you say to them? First of all, thanks for asking this question. And I want to say what you're feeling is real. It's not in your head. Weight stigma is real and it impacts fat people every day with the most impacts going to those at the highest weights and those with multiple marginalized identities, right? So it's not, you cannot self-love your way out of systemic oppression. Right. That's just like, you can't just love your body because, okay, yay, no more oppression. I can't self-love my way into a seat that doesn't accommodate me into an MRI that doesn't fit me into a doctor who gives me respectful care. I can't, there's nothing. So for me, first of all, I'm both queer and fat. And so while I would never compare oppressions directly, I could definitely see like when I came out in the mid nineties in Texas, um, in my experience, it was more common for me to have recommended to me, um, the idea of quote conversion therapy, right? If you don't enjoy homophobia, become straight. And I never thought that was a good idea, but as a fat person, I was sold for a long time that if I didn't want to experience weight stigma, I should become a thin person. And in addition to the idea that it's wrong to tell stigmatized people, they should change themselves to suit their oppression it's also highly unlikely to work and trying can kill you um, or ruin your life. And so what I realized for me was that I had spent years fighting my own body on behalf of weight stigma. 
And my choice instead, knowing that weight stigma is real, is to fight weight stigma on behalf of my body. And so that choice has made all the difference for me. But yeah, be clear, weight stigma is real. It shouldn't be happening. It's not our fault, but it becomes our problem. And and we can recognize that we are missing out on social capital because we exist in a larger body and we can hold space that that's wrong. And what I hope to teach people is that we can also grieve that, that just because people are going to treat us less because of the body we exist in does not mean we have to conform to fit in or to belong. And that there is a community who is ready to accept you as you are. And if the idea of conversion therapy literally makes you angry, which it does, then so should dieting. It should, the idea of intentional weight loss should make you just as angry because it is not a long-term solution. And the research says that there is no long-term way for us to lose weight. Can you talk a little bit about why the BMI is bullshit? Sure. So many reasons. So first of all, it was created by a statistician named Catalay. And the only thing he gets to his credit is that he wasn't looking at a health diagnostic at all. But he, what he was doing was trying to create like the ideal man, but he was hundred percent sure that that was a white man. Cause that's all he was studying as so he was doing all these different body measurements to try to figure out the ideal man. And one of them was just a ratio of weight and height. And then Ansel Keys, noted fat phobe Ansel Keys, pulled this into more modern medical ideas and insurance companies jumped on it because at the time it was pre-Obamacare, pre-in the States, um, they were allowed to uh, deny coverage based on pre-existing conditions. And so they BMI became a pre-existing condition. So like as a self-employed person for 14 years, I could not access health insurance because they were allowed to deny me because my existence was a pre-existing condition. So once again, fully rooted in racism, um, not a health diagnostic at all. And then out of this comes all this confirmation bias where people try to figure out, do people of higher BMIs have greater health issues without ever looking at the confounding variables of why that might be. And so it's just a mess. We need to get rid of it like yesterday. Um, it's completely ridiculous. It's driven a ton of profit to the, the diet industry and just a ton of harm to people who are classified as quote unquote wrong in within the BMI. I feel like, oh my goodness, I could keep talking to you. I have so many things that we could talk about, but I, I feel like I see so many people jumping off the BMI and like, but we're still jumping into that wellness, right? That wellness culture, um, which is just a diet by another name, right? It is, it is the same concept. Um, you had mentioned before talking about implicit bias. Explain that to the person listening. I think we all know it, but like, just explain it. Like we're five. How, how would you sure. say implicit bias? So the best analogy I have is an old uh, palm olive commercial where they would be sitting with their hands in like a bowl of green goo talking about this dishwashing detergent that was gentle on the hands. And so we'd be like, what is it called? And they're like, palm olive, you're soaking in it, right? We're soaking in it. We're all born into and raised in an incredibly fat phobic world. And so if people have negative beliefs about fat bodies, that's not like a galloping shock. And that's what implicit bias is. It's just, it's going on in the background. It's something that you're operating from, but you may not even be cognizant of it. Um, and simply you can 
have both explicit and implicit bias, but it's one of those things where unless we're actually actively doing the work to dismantle our own fat phobia, and this includes fat people, right? This is the work for us too, because we've internalized a lot of these things and you see it when people talk about other fat people. I'm not like those fat people, right? So that's a good indication that you have some work to do around your own fat phobia, but that's the idea of implicit bias is that it's what we've, you know, bought from society. Society. We bought it from Crap Mart without even knowing that we were shopping there. And now, like, we got to make some returns. Did you call it Crap Mart? I did. Uh, that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Refund. Um, are you familiar at all with the research of doctors and implicit bias? So yeah, um, again, Rebecca Pohl at the Rudd Center looked at um, doctors and and nurses, and that we find not just implicit bias, but also how that explicit moves into explicit bias, right? So like in one study, 50% of doctors found their, um, fat patients, quote, awkward, ugly, weak-willed, and unlikely to comply with treatment. Um, in some studies, up to 30% of nurses say they'd rather not treat obese patients. Like in one, I think 12% said they didn't want to touch fat patients. So, and by the way, the words obese and overweight are literally created to pathologize higher weight bodies. So I'm using them because they're in the research, but like obese literally just comes from a Latin root that means to eat until fat. So this is not a scientific term and let's not fool ourselves that it is. It's just made its way into science. I want to know how, right? Like the fact that we have the words morbidly obese, yet (laughs) there isn't a correlation between being in a large body and death, yet being underweight is connected to being harmful and potentially morbid. Yeah. I mean, we say like anytime you're trying to like label a group of people based on a physical characteristic to call for their eradication, you're going down the wrong road to begin with. And it doesn't matter how many like sciencey terms you come up with for it. And yeah, our culture and it, our weight stigma harms people of all sizes, Mm -hmm. right? Including people who are quote unquote underweight, right? Because, but it hurts. does the most harm to those at the highest weights and those with multiple marginalized identities. But we are, all of us are, our society's obsession with weight and with weight as a proxy for health harm does incredible harm and completely unnecessarily. Like you don't need a middleman for health. You can, and health is a complicated concept. That's also often soaked in white supremacy to be clear, but like between supporting your body, you don't need a middleman of weight to do that. Mm. I, I wish, um, I, I probably would have to go back and see if I could find it, but, um, I, for a brief stint taught introduction to eating disorders at a small college, uh, nearby. And I had found this study that talked about the implicit bias of doctors. And it said something like within three seconds, a doctor already knows how they're going to diagnose you three seconds, which means that as fat people, excuse my French, but we're fucked. Like (laughs) three seconds is not any time or is not enough time at all, but it's not enough time to get a full holistic picture of a person. So what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, that's horrifying. And it is. I mean, sometimes I wonder if it even takes them the whole three seconds, right? They walk in, they, or they, you know, they haven't even met me, but they've seen my BMI or whatever. Um, so yeah, it's, a huge problem. And our, the way that our uh, healthcare system works, where doctors are incentivized to spend less time, where they're overworked, they have patient loads that are too high, like all of this contributes. Mm-hmm. But that's still no excuse for making wild guesses about a patient based on how they look. 
that's not the ethical practice of medicine, regardless of what constraints the doctors are working under. And so to me, that's like, I have a lot of compassion for doctors, but I have to center the people they're harming Mm -hmm. because they're in a position of power and authority. And I work with a lot of doctors and I have a lot of love for a lot of them, but like, we have to be talking about the most important thing. And a doctor who is really doing their work understands that. Yes. Right. That the focus has to be on the patients being harmed. And we, I mean, we talk about this all of the time in our community, but harm does, I mean, it doesn't need intent for it to occur. occur. And so it is up to those with privilege. And in this case, it's the doctors to do your research, to do your education and to honor your ethics, which is to do no harm. Um, And so that's, it's, it's on their responsibility. So let's say best case scenario, we have a doctor who we think might be open to a conversation. How, how would you encourage somebody to advocate for themselves? Yeah. So there's a lot of different ways to do this and it could depend on like, if you have other doctors available or if you really need something from this doctor, uh, to me, the first kind of magic question is do thin people get this health issue or this symptom? And the answer is always going to be yes. And so the next question is, okay, well, what do you do for thin people in this same situation? Mm. Um, you have a right to informed consent of medical interventions. So even if the doctor believes that weight loss is the best treatment for you, you still have a right to say, you know, I've tried that weight cycling has been the outcome. I understand there's a lot of harm and a really low failure rate. So I'm going to not give my informed consent Mm. for that. And so I'd like to know like, what other interventions do you have? And maybe using that specific language of like, I do not give my informed consent. The other thing I encourage my clients to do is either throw in the word, like I I've developed disordered eating or eating disorder because of weight cycling. And usually they will tread more lightly when talking about uh, this subject. Any other thoughts on how people can advocate for themselves at the doctor? Yeah. So if you are asking for tests or diagnostics and your doctor is just stuck on like try losing weight and then come back, um, you can ask them to document their denial in your chart while you wait. And that often has the effect of getting you what you wanted in terms of like the diagnostic or the test or, you know, because they aren't going to be comfortable saying, you know, can't patients said they are experiencing, you know, X, Y, Z pain. And I refused any intervention other than weight loss. Mm. Right. So you can ask them to document and you can have a conversation with your doctor. There's a, a, page I created with um, Dr. Louise Metz and Tiana Dodson called Hayes Health Sheets, H-A-E-S. And we have on there, on the resources page, there are like cards um, that you can take to the doctor. There are cards for not being weighed from morelove.org. And there are also diagnosis specific uh, care guides for uh, practitioners and patients and advocates. You can literally like download high blood pressure and see like, what are the weight neutral care options for that? And so that's a tool that folks can use. Amazing. We'll definitely include those in the, in the show notes. Um, I know also too, I have gone to the doctors and been like, hi, I don't want to be, or I declined to be weighed. And I've been told, no, you don't have a choice. Like maybe not those words exactly, but no, you have to, it's your first visit. And, uh, if you say I decline, right, you can put it in my chart that I decline to be weighed. Uh, you can also share if you are going under insurance, you can call your insurance company and find out will you reimburse the session if I don't get weighed? And they normally will say, yes, there's, I think very few instances where you, they need your weight, but for the majority of time you don't. And I'd also like to say, even if you're in a smaller body, I would still refuse to be weighed because that is how we fight this 
oppressive system is that if none of us are getting weight, actually give us health care. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's a great way to work in solidarity. And you can, you can just say, you know, exercising my right of informed refusal, please document my chart. Or you can say, um, yeah, I, you know what, if the insurance doesn't pay for it, then we can talk about that. But for now, like, let's just move on. Um, but yeah, it's you, there are very few circumstances where you have to be weighed and even fewer where they have to tell you your weight or talk to you about it in any way. So yeah, super important information. And you have all of the language. I'm like, do you want to just come with me to the doctor's office? Like, how do I, <laughs> how do I bring you with me? <laughs> I like one of my dreams is to create an app that people could take where like they to the doctor's office where they could like have like little lectures or like little, you know, language. <laughs> the doctor said use. this. So now play this. Yeah, audio. Now what do I do? Yes. Like, <laughs> no. Um, but yeah, it's, and sometimes doctors are incentivized based on getting metrics like BMI or doing weight loss counseling. And that's true, but does not make you give up your right to informed consent and refusal. Right. And typically like in the Medicare in, uh, incentivized payments, if you decline to be weighed, you remove yourself from the denominator and numerator that they use to calculate those incentives. So the doctor isn't penalized. Many doctors don't know that. Um, But even if they are penalized, like that is unfortunate that that doctor's pay is being harmed by fat phobia, but that doesn't mean that you as a fat patient have to also be harmed by fat phobia. Amen. Amen. Um, I just feel like I could ask you so many questions. I'll have to have you back at some point. What would be your final thoughts that you would leave people with on this topic? Um, That fat phobia, weight stigma in healthcare, weight stigma anywhere is not your fault, even if it becomes your problem. So we teach harm reduction strategies to live in a world where we live in oppressed bodies, but none of that is your fault. It shouldn't be happening. You shouldn't need to take a class to go to the doctor. Like this is all bullshit. This is all oppression and none of this should be happening. I love it. I love it. Regan, thank you so much. How can people find you and work with you? Tell us what, what offerings you have. So my Substack is weightandhealthcare.substack.com. And that's where I write about the intersections of weight science, weight stigma, and healthcare. And then my main, the blog that I started with back in 2009 is Dances with Fat. And from there, you can find like all of my social media and 1800 blog posts that I've written and all kinds of my stuff, my monthly workshops that I give in the video library from those. So amazing. You are an arsenal of knowledge. I'm so grateful for you. Thank you so much. Right back at you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Body Grievers Club. This podcast was made possible by my Body Grievers Club membership. If you like what you heard today, you can leave us a review and you can share this episode with all of your friends. If you're interested in learning more about how you can work with me, check out the link in my bio on my Instagram page at Body Image with Brie or my website at bodyimagewithbrie.com. Thank you again for being here, friends. Until next time. Thank you.